Well, um, let me thank the Sterling Choir for being with us this morning. It's great to have you here. And let me congratulate all of you for being uh, among the few who made it out today, uh, recognizing that you not only had to set your alarm ahead, but you actually had to survive getting up earlier. So great to have you here today as we continue this study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, It was uh, probably two years ago that somebody introduced me to the uh, smartphone app called Shazam. Uh, Not certain if you have discovered Shazam or not, but uh, it allows you to identify any song, virtually any song, that's playing on the radio. You just Shazam it, and it will give you the the name of the song, the artist who's performing it, the year it was recorded, and it will also give you the lyrics. And getting the lyrics to some songs has solved decade-long mysteries, that I have had. I can remember arguments, you know, 30, 40 years ago with friends when we're debating what it is that uh, someone is saying in a song. And so now when I hear these songs, and uh, yeah, obviously they're on the uh, oldies station, but when I hear them, uh, I shazam them, and about half the time I go, oh, well, now I get it. And about half the time I think, Well, no wonder I didn't get it. That is just stupid. That is a stupid word in that specific spot. Well, today, as we continue in this study, as we look at the second of four songs that Luke includes in the early chapters of his gospel, uh, I hope your response is to go, oh, well, now I get it. That makes great sense. Um, As you hopefully know by now, in this report that we are working our way through, this investigative report filed by Luke, looking at the life, the work, the teaching, and the claims of Christ, we, have, um, we are coming to the end of the first chapter. And uh, you get an impression already from things that we've gone over that Luke was a medical doctor, and he was an amateur historian, and he was, a, he was an investigative reporter, and he was an evangelist. He had a mission. He was writing this particular report for a guy by the name of Theophilus who he wanted to persuade uh, to grow in his new faith. I've argued Theophilus was a wealthy Greek government official and a newfound follower of Christ. He's, He's arguing for Theophilus and for all of us that we should put our faith in Christ. That Jesus is who he claimed to be, God himself, and the answer to our deepest problems. Well, in addition to Luke being a doctor, a historian, and other things, today I want to suggest that he was also a bit of a Renaissance man because he has apparently an interest in both art and music. Now, the claim that Luke was uh, an art follower and even an artist comes from the Orthodox Church. This comes from tradition. It's not found in the Bible, but tradition in the Orthodox Church says that Luke was the one who painted the first icons. Now, we use the word icon today to refer to a person or a picture or something that is so powerfully associated with some virtue or something that we just equate the two. Something is iconic when it has got a very powerful hold on us and on culture. The word icon 
as I'm using it today, refers to a religious painting that the, uh, that the Eastern Church holds up as aids in worship. Now, just your quick church history review, 1054 is what we call the Great Schism. The church sort of moves left and right. It moves east and west. This happens for a handful of reasons, probably mostly for sort of European political reasons. People were orienting around uh, Istanbul, uh, modern-day modern Istanbul, then Constantinople in the east, and Rome in the west. There were also church politics in play. The bishop of Rome was claiming preeminence, right? claiming to be first among all the bishops, indeed the pope. And those in the east said, no, we don't recognize one bishop above others. The bishops are all equal. So you've got that political dynamic going on. You additionally had a little bit of theological disagreement. Now, not that much. The big issues were all locked in by 1054. All the major creeds, the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Athanasian Creed, Chalcedonian Creed, all of these are in agreement by everybody. But there, are, uh, there were some theological issues where people disagreed. And principal among them was the use of icons in worship. So uh, the Western church claimed that icons, such as I'm holding here, um, that these are idols. And I, uh, I scandalized my Baptist tour guide when I was in Belarus, in Minsk, and I asked him, I said, I want to buy an icon um, for show-and-tell purposes, for purposes just like now, so that I can show you what an icon looks like. He was not happy with me, um, but I assured him I wasn't going to pray to it or try and pray through it. I simply wanted it for show-and-tell. Western church says, this looks like an idol to me. The Eastern Church said, no, it's an aid to worship. It's not something that we worship itself. But also, they said, Luke painted the first icons. And there are a couple icons that exist today that uh, are generally attributed to Luke by tradition. We have two of them here. One of them is, um, if we can put this up, it's the... This is uh, called the Lady Vladimir. It's obviously Jesus uh, and Mary. And the second one is uh, called the Madonna. It's out, of, uh, it's out of Poland. There are also icons of Luke painting icons. So I've got one of those. That's actually the painting. Let's go to the next one. This is an icon showing Luke painting icons. And then there are paintings showing Luke painting paintings of Mary and Jesus and others. Um, look, I, I, don't, uh, I don't believe that Luke painted the first icons. If I believed that, then I obviously would join uh, the Orthodox Church and be at a place that used icons. I don't even know whether or not Luke was a painter, right? It's, it's just, it's, it's an interesting idea. Whether or not he was a painter... He was clearly persuaded or informed by music. So he records four of the early speeches as songs. 
So the first is the Magnificat that Mary gave. The second uh, is the one we're going to look at today, the Benedictus. The third is the song sung by the angels when they are announcing the birth of Christ. And the fourth is a song sung by Simeon, the old man who is waiting to see the Christ child, the promise of Israel, before he died. Um, We call the the second one the Benedictus uh, because that's the first word in Latin of this song. Just like the Magnificat was the first word in Mary's Mary's talk, his speech, the Benedictus means blessed and it's the first word in Zechariah's uh, speech. Now, please do not imagine that uh, first century uh, Israeli life looked like, uh, you know, a precursor to Fiddler on the Roof with uh, people occasionally breaking out in song and shepherds and townspeople falling into a choreographed dance routine. Um, That's not what happened. But by the time Luke gets around to filing his report, some of these early talks, some of these early speeches have already been memorized by people and put to music. Because they were living largely in a society that doesn't have paper. They memorized a lot more than we did. One of the ways you aided your memory was by putting things to music. And so Luke records those as songs. And we're looking at this uh, second song today. It's found in Luke chapter 1. You can turn there. We're looking at uh, verses 67 through the end of the chapter. Now, last week I set this all in context, noted that, uh, that Zechariah has spent most of the last year in silence. The angel had showed up to say to him that uh, his prayer was going to be answered, right, that his wife was going to give birth to a son who would be the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, and Zechariah sort of gets in a little bit of a, of a tiff with the angel who's announcing this and consequently is silenced. I believe can't hear as well as can't speak for most of a year. What we have here are his first words after the sound goes back on and he has his voice. And it, it is obvious that he has used the, the year of silence quite well. Right? He, is, he has thought things through. And I suspect we could all use a lot more silence in our life. And uh, he's celebrating this new chance that God has given him, which, of course, we celebrate all the time. God's mercies are new every morning. As long as we're alive, we got more chances, more opportunities to do the right thing, not the wrong thing, to turn to God, not away from him. And Zechariah is, uh, is celebrating this new chance that he's given. And so what we get sounds at the beginning very much like a psalm, and then uh, most of the way through, he transitions and speaks directly to his newborn son, John, uh, who will be John the Baptist. So let me read this for us, uh, just working our way through slowly. Verse 67 is where we start. Uh, His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. Right? He has bought us back. He redeemed a slave. You redeemed something you had taken to the pawn shop. He has, God has redeemed us. He has bought us back. He has raised up a horn 
of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, this is not uh, a horn as in a musical instrument, with all due respect to the brass players in uh, the band. These were horns designed to uh, signify strength. So um, these are both horns that have been turned into horns, right? These are, these are Jewish uh, shofars, and they are played ceremonially. But I don't have them for that reason. I have them to show you that these are the kinds of horns that people would have been thinking of. So this goes on uh, a, a sort of a wild uh, antelope that is common in the Middle East and common in it to the Jews. So it's like this. This goes on uh, an ox, and um, I don't know when the last time you've seen um, either a, a wild antelope stared one of these guys down or uh, an ox, which is, of course, you know, 3,000 pounds of mad muscle. But um, basically, the implication here is that the Savior that is being sent, the horn of salvation, is nothing that you're going to push around, Right? These guys can hold their own. There is, um, there is power that is being delivered. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Verse 70 then sets up what follows. It's in parens to sort of let us know there's a list that's going to follow. And it says, as he said through his holy prophets long ago. And then we've got this list of promises that God has made in the past. Salvation from our enemies... And from the hand of all who hate us, mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Remember, again, last week I said, do the whole flow of the Old Testament. It's creation, fall, promise, call. The call goes to Abraham. Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I will enter into a deal with you. I will strike a covenant with you. If you will follow me, I will give you land, heirs, and I will fulfill the promise that I have made to to send a rescuer. I will fulfill that through your heirs. So that's what's being referenced here. Uh, Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and remember his holy covenant that he swore to our father Abraham. He is, the Jews would recognize we are God's people. He is going to use us. He's going to keep us around. He's going to use us to deliver the Savior. We're the ones. And so they're thanking, um, Zechariah is thanking God for that. And then it says to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and enable us to serve him without fear. We're not saved for the purpose of doing nothing. We are redeemed for the purpose of serving others, loving and caring for God and others in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That sounds like a psalm, you know, sort of updated psalm, but it's a psalm, and now we get this word that's directed to John, the child, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. Uh, 
two things to note here. First of all, this is not the most politically correct statement that Zechariah is delivering. The people would have loved to hear that God is going to save them from their enemies in the hands of all those who hate them. They would have been a little shocked to hear that salvation was going to come to them through the forgiveness of their sins. They would have said, no, what we need is you to, salvation is going to come when you put down the ugly Romans. And what Zechariah is announcing is, no, your problems actually start with yourself. Generally, that's the case. And then there's this allusion clearly to Christ when it talks about the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. Um, the Pax Romana it was on at this point. This is the celebrated period of peace in the Roman Empire. But of course, Zechariah would know that it wasn't really peace, right? It was just the absence of war. It wasn't God's peace. It wasn't shalom. It wasn't the flourishing of people. It was just Rome having all the armies and uh, keeping everybody suppressed. And so we've got Zechariah saying that, that the that the promise of God, the rising sun, is going to shine light in the darkness and is going to bring real peace. And his son is going to announce the arrival of this rescuer. Now, there are, um, there are two big ideas I would like you to get from this passage today. The first deals with what these words are. Are and the second deals with what these words mean. So let's start with what these words are. These words are prophetic. Okay, verse 67 says, His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So I, I, I pointed out that there are, there are three offices that are found in the Old Testament prophet, priest, and king. Right? These, are, these are precursors to Christ. He's the perfect prophet, spokesman for God, because of course he is God. He's the perfect priest. He is our high priest. He, he makes intercession for us even today. And he's the king of kings. So these three offices were all getting people ready for the prophet, priest, and king himself. And I said, look, if you get a choice in the Old Testament, you'd always pick to be king. You didn't want to be uh, priest, but you would pick priest over, over prophet. Prophet was the worst job you could get because prophets generally were only called in when bad news needed to be delivered and it tended to be taken out on the prophet. You had a celebrated but short uh, tenure as a prophet usually. Well, a different way to think about the, the work of a prophet is to see that they did two different things. They were involved in foretelling, and they were involved in foretelling. Okay, foretelling was simply speaking for God to the people, proclaiming God's message to the people, which pretty consistently consisted of three things. You're full of yourself, Sin, pride, you're completely wrapped up in your own lives. You need to care for others, especially the poor. You need to follow me. 
We get this about 8,000 times in different ways. You're full of yourself. You're, You're full of sin and pride. You need to stop that. You need to care for others, especially the poor, the weak, the oppressed. You need to follow me, worship me. That was forthtelling. That was most of the job of a prophet. Occasionally, prophets were involved in foretelling, which was predicting the future. They would make announcements about what was going to happen. And they would do this for two reasons. First, because it's helpful information. Right? If you know what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or how a battle's going to turn out, that's helpful information. Right? Imagine if tomorrow morning you get Tuesday morning's Wall Street Journal delivered to your house and you know everything that's going to happen in the next 24 hours. Right? That's helpful information. So the first reason that God would foretell the future through his prophets was to help people out. The second and principal reason he would foretell the future was to make the argument that he was God and that he had a plan and that he knew what was going to happen and you ought to pay attention to him. He would would foretell the future in order to get people's attention, to assure them, one, that the person speaking for him was speaking for him. And in in the Old Testament, a prophet had to be right 100% of the time. If you claimed to be a prophet of God and you made a prediction that did not come true, you were supposed to be killed. Don't don't claim to be speaking for God and then speak for yourself. That was a capital offense. So prophets had to be 100% right. But once somebody's 100% right a couple times, you go, well, I'm going to listen to this person. And, and I believe that they are speaking for a God who actually has a plan and knows how things are going to work out. I ought to listen to God. Now, I want to I park here for just a minute because the truth is, today, so few people understand this book well enough that we, we don't appreciate that it offers sort of a verification for its own claims. We don't understand what we've got here. We don't understand how the Bible has made these predictions and then had them answered as a way of saying to us, you should pay attention to this book. Because the things it's saying will also happen, will also happen. I mean, the the Bible is unique, right? The Bible is unique in that it's the best-selling book of all time. It's the, it's, it's the most translated. It's the most studied. More books have been written about this book than any other book. So it's unique in that way. And the Bible is unique in that it was written over 1,600 years by 40 different authors in three languages and on three continents, and yet it tells one story. It's unique in that way. And the Bible is unique in that it has a unique power. Right? It has, a, it has a, the self-authenticating voice of God. I, I find when I'm reading it, especially when I'm reading the words of Christ, I feel less like I'm reading the book, more like the book is reading me. 
Right? There is a power there. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Bible is unique in a handful of ways. It is also unique in that it contains claims of things that are going to happen. And then we see that later on those things happen. We're not expected to believe that God is God and Christ is his son and this is his plan on the basis of nothing. Right? This, isn't, this isn't blind faith. This isn't a mindless step into never-never land in wishful thinking. The Bible and God, more generally, offers proof and evidence and signs of his goodness and his love and his care and his power. Part of that is, is, is found just in what we see in nature. Psalm 19, uh, this is a psalm of David. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. Okay, theologians and philosophers call this kind of speech from nature, the, the evidence, the signs that we get from, from the creation. They call this uh, the teleological argument or the argument from design. There, there are things that you can say when you look at creation. There are things that you could say about the creator. When you see evidence of design, then you think there must be a designer. So this argument sort of came into the, the forefront in the early 19th century as we discovered more and more about um, just about the, the astronomy and the way the universe was put together. And William Paley uh, was the guy who sort of first wrote about this and articulated it in sort of a 19th, 20th century version. And he called it the, the watchmaker. Right? If you walk through the woods and you find a watch... You pick it up and you look at it and you say, well, clearly, this didn't just fall together on its own, right? The springs, the dials, the gears, the numbers, this isn't just dumb chance. If there's a watch, there must be a watch maker who made it. This watch gives evidence of intelligent design. And for the last 150 years, there were a handful of things that we would put forward when we were talking about the teleological argument or the argument from design, also called the anthropomorphic argument. People would say, look, the, the earth is uniquely positioned away from the sun. If you moved it uh, you know, 10% closer or further away, game over. Too hot, too cold, doesn't work. The moon is perfectly positioned. Uh, 240,000 miles away. If you move it 10% closer, the, the gravitational attraction of the moon gives us tidal waves that are 35 to 50 feet tall, sweeping over Sterling College, among other places. The whole continent is going to be underwater. Game over. The, the earth rotates around the sun at the perfect speed, if it went any faster, the seasons wouldn't be long enough to grow food. If it went any slower, we also, it would be too long, we couldn't survive. The earth is perfectly tilted on its axis. If it was standing upright, then all the water would go to the poles and we would just have water and we'd have desert in the middle. Right? You can just go on and on. These were the arguments that for a hundred some years we paid attention to. Well, 
more recently, right, there's been this explosion of new information that has, that has come about that has persuaded some former atheists to say, I give up, right? The evidence now is too strong. I, I, I have to admit that there is a designer. And I just want to read two of these for you. I'm, forgive me, I'm reading these two out of the first Fence Post book that I wrote, but it's, it's worth going back and remembering this. One of them is the force strength of gravity. The force strength of gravitational attraction is a constant that must be maintained for human life to exist. If it were only slightly increased, a series of events would unfold that would crush human life. We have long understood this. But as it turns out, this number is unbelievably precise. How precise? Imagine a linear dial that is stretched from one end of the universe to the other and divided into billions upon billions upon billions of one-inch segments. The force strength of gravitation is located at an exact spot on that ruler. If you were to move the dial by one inch, an adjustment of one part in 10,000 billion, 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 life as we know it could not exist. Number two, the cosmological constant. A second constant, this one expressing the energy density of empty space, is also ridiculously fine-tuned. Robin Collins, professor at Messiah College, Ph.D. in physics from the University of Texas, Ph.D. in philosophy from Notre Dame, states, quote, the fine-tuning has conservatively been estimated to be at least one part in a hundred million, billion, 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 billion. He equates this uh, with standing in space and throwing a dart at Earth and having it successfully hit a bullseye that is one trillionth of a trillionth of an inch in diameter. These are two of 30-some different variables that all have to be ridiculously fine-tuned for life to exist. There is evidence of a creator. We're not asked to believe on the basis of nothing. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. There are other categories of evidence. I am particularly, increasingly persuaded by the life and teaching of Christ. There's no one like this out there. There's no one saying the things that this 30-year-old carpenter says 2,000 years ago. No one making the claims that he makes. No one perfectly fulfilling the prophecies that were made about the Savior. And then additionally, we have got this book, which contains its own way of disproving itself or of confirming that it is what it claims to be. And this book has all of these prophecies which are made and then are fulfilled. Predictions are made and fulfilled. The Wall Street Journal for tomorrow keeps showing up today. Zechariah's song is one example. He is announcing, right, in this In this talk, he is announcing that the prophecies that were made 400 years earlier by Malachi are being fulfilled in his sight. His very old wife has just given birth to a son. Just like Malachi said, just like the angel had prophesied was going to happen. So he's in. 
he goes, right, God has a plan, and he is announcing, he is excited about the confirmation of that plan. Additionally, he makes other announcements about what John the Baptist, his son, would do. So there is no book like this book. We have to understand what it is that we have here. The book is divine. God has spoken. There is truth here that will change your life if you let it. Secondly, and briefly, I said I wanted to talk about what these words are. These words are prophecy. I also want to talk about what these words mean comprehensively. And just briefly, let me say, these words mean that God's plan is bigger and better than our plan. Always. God's plans are always bigger and better than our plans. Now, I know sometimes that is just almost impossible to see. And we go through things that we do not understand. Maybe we'll understand them a year from now. Maybe we'll understand them 10 years from now. Maybe not. It might might take getting to heaven before we can see what God was doing and see the backside of that tapestry and, and make sense of it. But God's love and power are such that his plans are bigger and better than our plans. The Jews are looking for a Messiah in the footsteps of David who is going to defeat the Romans and allow them to climb back to the top of the first century food chain. Who cares? God's plans are to send a Savior who will save us from our sin and give us eternal life and forgiveness and allow us to be part of a plan that is going to unfold forever and that will work. A world that works. Right, where people flourish, where there's true peace. That's what God is talking about. That's what we get invited into. Zechariah is, is excited because the one has come who is announcing the way for the other who will pave the way, introduce the kingdom of God, which is now spreading. And we have an opportunity to be part of spreading that with the promise that he will return. And then he will make all things right. If you are looking for application for making sense of this this sermon, I I just would say the the big application here is that there is a plan. And we're just, we're reading the story and we're making sense of the story which tells us the plan, which tells us about God. If you're looking for something that you might think about more specifically, let me suggest that you can figure out whether or not you think John the Baptist showing up and making the announcements that he showed up to make would strike you as a teacher returning to the classroom or as the Calvary coming to your rescue. When uh, grade school teachers leave the room, pandemonium generally breaks out, right? Not the first 30 seconds, but if there's some sense that the teacher's going to be gone for a while, somebody starts laughing, and then somebody goes to the blackboard and draws a picture, and then pretty soon there's eraser fights, and, you know, all kinds of things are happening, provided somebody's been posted at the door, right, to announce 
the teacher's coming. And then everybody is going to scramble and get back in their chair, right? Put the erasers back, erase the picture. Everybody's going to act like they're doing what they should be doing. Well, it could be that that's the way you view, right, an appointment with God, meeting God. You needed John the Baptist to say, hide everything, act like you're busy, right? Get about a, a whole other line of thinking because God is about to show up. But you have a different option. And that option is to be part of God's work in the world today. And to lean into this one that he promised that he was going to send. And in that case, the announcement that God is showing up again is like the Calvary is coming. Right? Relief is on its way. Victory is assured. Right? You don't have to do anything different. You just keep doing what you were doing because you were doing the right thing. Teacher or Calvary, the choice is sort of up to you. The news from the end of Luke is that the prophet has arrived. The herald, the announcer has arrived. And he is, he is getting in place to proclaim that we should repent and be ready for Christ. When we return to our study of Luke, we will be in Luke 2 in the birth of Christ. So we will be having Christmas in March. Brad sort of suggested we were already there when he said this was the fourth week of Advent. It's actually the fourth week of Lent. Uh, But uh, we will be in Advent when we get back to Luke chapter 2. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for um, the heavens that declare your glory. We thank you for this book that uh, shows up with tomorrow's news today and for the, the, the ways we can be assured of your presence and love and power through the person and work and teaching and claims of Christ. I pray for greater strength and insight to know how to live so that uh, the news of your return is uh, the welcome news of the Calvary, not of a teacher um, stopping in. May we all run in that direction and be part of your work in this world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.